0: On a cold November night, young Lieutenant von Mutia stood at the entrance to the bridge over the Don River at the town of Luchinsky in southern Russia, dividing his attention between the panzers, armored cars and staff vehicles passing over the bridge and the dark windswept steppe ahead of him. He was dedicated to his role as Lieutenant in the Wehrmacht and to his job this night, commanding the single company of panzer grenadiers who covered the retreat of the 14th Panzer Corps over the Don east towards Stalingrad. At about 3.10 in the morning, the last of the stragglers passed over the bridge. Lieutenant von Mutius turned to his company's sergeant major and said, I am very proud to be the last officer of the German Wehrmacht to cross this bridge. Twenty minutes later, exactly on schedule, these are Germans after all, the German engineers detonated explosives, sending the bridge into the frigid water they are now safe from the vengeful Russians for a time. Welcome to episode 40 of Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting as always from the Redbeard Studio, on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa. Before I get into this episode, I just want to remind you that you can support this podcast by joining on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Barbarossa and choose the membership level you're most comfortable with. I appreciate all your support. Now, last episode, number 39, was a brief look at Operation Mars, the action on the central area of the Eastern Front in the autumn of 1942. So with this episode, we turn our attention back to the Battle of Stalingrad, the bloodiest of the Second World War, and in fact, the bloodiest in history. So, in that little story that opened up this episode, it might have raised a few questions. For example, why were the Germans fleeing across the river eastward toward Stalingrad when they were being attacked by the Soviets? Well, if you cast your mind back to episode 38, you'll remember Operation Uranus as two Red Army fronts comprising five armies struck from the north along the Don River and from the east over the Kuban steppe, south of Stalingrad. They attacked not the battle-hardened professional Germans of the 6th Army, who were doing such a great job of destroying Stalingrad, but instead the Soviets attacked the less experienced and more poorly equipped and trained Italian and Romanian armies, who were stretched out along that extended salient, the flanks that led from the solidly German held territory in Ukraine all the way out to this very, very distant point at Stalingrad. So take a look at map one on the webpage for this episode to see what I mean by those long extended flanks. Now, typically warfare usually slows down, decreases in the winter. This didn't happen in November 1942 in Russia. On 19th November, five Red Armies drove through icy mist that turned into blizzards, sweeping aside the armies guarding the northern flank. The Germans tried to counterattack, but just as happened a year earlier, they were suffering in the cold weather. Also, they were significantly weakened and short of fuel and ammunition at the end of their 1,000-mile supply lines. They just could not hold back the KV-1 heavy and T-34 medium tanks of the Red Army. Thus, they withdrew, being driven eastward. And when the two arms of Operation Uranus met at the Don River southwest of Stalingrad, they trapped large numbers of Axis troops and equipment. This position the Germans called the Kessel, or cauldron. Now they faced a decision. Should they break out? which would mean abandoning Stalingrad? Or should they hold on until more German forces could break through the Red Army Fronts and relieve them? Well, before we answer that question, it's time for our regular feature, What Else Is Happening in the War? Late Autumn, 1942 the high water mark for the axis has passed. Now that flood has begun to recede. Or to use another metaphor, the axis hold on the world was beginning to crumble at the edges. In the Pacific, the Battle of Guadalcanal continued in late November with heavy losses on both sides. On December 7th, the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the US launched its biggest battleship the USS New Jersey. By the 15th of December, American and Australian forces defeated the Japanese at Buna, New Guinea, forcing them to abandon this great island and their position that threatened the Australian continent. In North Africa, as I mentioned last episode, the Germans lost the Second Battle of El Alamein in Libya in early November, thus ending the threat on the Suez Canal. Then, on the 5th of November, American and British forces landed in Morocco and Algeria in Operation Torch, capturing the port of Oman and driving the Axis back to Tunisia. And, as I said, in Russia, Operation Mars, the third major offensive on the Rzhev salient, failed. Operation Mars was originally planned to start in late October, but for some reason it was delayed to the 25th of November. Historians argue over whether Mars was intended as a twin to Operation Uranus, the offensive to encircle the Germans attacking Stalingrad, as I mentioned, or whether Mars was just supposed to be a diversion to prevent the Germans from moving divisions down from Moscow to help the 6th Army in Stalingrad. We don't know. I doubt that we'll ever know for sure one way or the other, but in some circles, it's a a lively debate. At any rate, Operation Uranus started on 19th November 1942, with three Soviet armies, the 1st Guards, the 5th Tank, and the 21st Army driving south from the Don, smashing through the weak, under-equipped and supplied Romanian defenders of the German flanks. The Red Armies then swung to the east, to surround the 6th Army in Stalingrad and its headquarters at the town of Golubinsky on the west bank of the Don, below its Great Bend. See map 2 on the webpage to really grasp uh, the positions here. Now, remember, it's late November, so the days are short in addition to being cold. The sun sets around 4.30 p.m., and on this particular 19th November, the Red Army tanks were driving into freezing mist that became snow and then a blizzard. The next day, the 57th and 51st armies moved westward from positions south of Stalingrad, again smashing through Romanian defenders. These two attacks met at Kalach on the Don River on the 22nd of November, trapping nearly 300,000 German and Axis troops in a pocket, which the Germans called the Kessel or Cauldron. General Friedrich Paulus, commander of the 6th Army at Stalingrad, started planning a breakout to link up with the rest of Army Group B south and west of Stalingrad. However, Hitler ordered the 6th Army to stand firm despite the threat of temporary encirclement, end quote. He ordered Paulus to take command of any elements of General Hermann Hott's 4th Panzer Army and the Romanian 4th Army Corps south of Stalingrad, therefore inside the encirclement. Paulus was going to be in charge of all Axis forces within the cauldron. Now, this order not to retreat, stand fast, hold on, is reminiscent of Hitler's similar orders to Rommel in North Africa a little bit earlier in the fall, as well as of Stalin's notorious not one step back order made more than once since since the launch of the war in the East a year and a half earlier thing about these no retreats, no surrenders, not one step back orders, they always lead to greater losses of the side that doesn't want to retreat. So the Germans in the pocket, about 270,000 men plus the Romanian forces, had no choice but to consolidate closer to the city that, that they could not capture. Colonel Reinhard Galen was on the scene. In his memoirs, he wrote about this event. Quote, The two arms of the Soviet pincer movement met at Kalach, encircling our 6th Army at Stalingrad and a number of lesser formations, a quarter of a million of our finest troops, with 100 tanks, 1,800 guns, and over 10,000 motorized vehicles. The rest of this tragedy belongs to history. Quote. General Maximilian von Weeks, Commander of Army Group B and thus the superior officer to General Paulus in the, of the Sixth Army in Stalingrad sent a message to the High Command in Berlin quote, With the total dissolution of the Romanian Third Army, Sixth Army is now the only fighting formation capable of inflicting damage on the enemy. End quote. Weeks and Paulus believed that the most sensible response for the Sixth Army at this point would be to break out of the encirclement. There was no way the Luftwaffe could live up to Goering's promise to supply them by air, nor could they hold out long enough for another force to break through the Soviet lines and rescue them. But Hitler would not hear it. He ordered the 6th Army to stand and fight in Stalingrad, to the last man. The 6th Army in and around Stalingrad seemed impressive at this point, on paper, The 270,000 men included the 6th Army's headquarters, five corps, 13 infantry divisions, three panzer divisions, three motorized divisions, and an aircraft division, as well as some of the 4th Panzer Army. There were also remains of two mauled Romanian divisions and a Croatian regiment. Hermann Goering, the overfed head of the Luftwaffe, German air force, had promised that his planes could supply the 6th Army by air, long enough for a rescue force to reach them. They had done so, after all, in the Demyansk pocket near Leningrad earlier in the year. So Paulus gave Goering the 6th Army's needs. 600 tons of fuel, food, and ammunition every day. After all, it's 300,000 men fighting for their lives. The Luftwaffe's best estimate was that they could manage 300 tons per day, half of what was needed. In reality, the best they ever managed to deliver was 70 tons in one day, less than an eighth of the need, and most days it was far less than that. The problem was the Luftwaffe just did not have enough planes to meet that demand, and every day The Soviets shot down more of them. Then the Allies landed in North Africa and the Luftwaffe sent 400 planes from the Eastern Front to transport troops to Tunisia. Over the next two months the Luftwaffe would lose 490 transport aircraft and many air crews. They managed to evacuate 29,000 wounded. Overall, the German and Axis forces in the pocket were in a sorry state by December. First of all, many still did not have proper winter uniforms. You'd think they would have learned after the previous winter caught them in Russia unprepared. But while the winter uniforms had been ordered and officially issued, somehow they hadn't actually reached many of the men on the eastern front. That did not stop the temperature from dropping nor the ground from freezing. The units still west of the dawn were ordered to retreat and leave behind anything they could not carry. Often, that meant destroying vehicles, even tanks, that did not have enough fuel to make it across the bridges. After all this, the 14th Panzer Division was left with only 24 tanks. Not really a massive threatening sight. Desperate soldiers took to stealing from local civilians within and beyond the pocket. One German captured by the Red Army was found with 22 pairs of woolen stockings, women's woolen stockings. Others took skirts, babies' diapers, table linen, bed sheets, everything they could use to try to keep warm. And while they were at it, they also took jewelry and any other valuables they could carry. Most of all, they took food. Despite the feelings of the young lieutenant Mutius on the bridge at Luchinsky, the retreat eastward was anything but orderly. In his definitive book *Stalingrad: The Fateful Siege, 1942–1943*, Antony Beevor described the situation this way: closer to the bridges over the Don. There were solid traffic jams of trucks, staff cars, dispatch riders desperately trying to get through, farm carts and the odd field gun towed by exhausted and undernourished horses. From time to time there would be waves of panic with cries of Russian tanks. The Soviet 16th Tank Corps was attacking down through the 76th Infantry Division toward Vertyachi, Threatening to cut off, German units left west of the Don. Some of the ugliest scenes developed at the approaches to the bridge at Akimovsky, with soldiers shouting, jostling, and even fighting to get across to the eastern bank. The weak and wounded were trampled underfoot. Sometimes, officers threatened each other for not letting their men pass first. Even the fele detachment, armed with submachine guns, was unable to restore a semblance of order." Many soldiers risked crossing the frozen river on foot. While the ice was thick near the banks, there were many weak spots in the center. And anyone who's ever walked on a frozen river knows you can't always see the weak spots. Men who broke through were instantly doomed. Conditions were no better, though, on the east side of the river. German soldiers crowded into civilians' homes, seeking shelter from the bitter cold, leaving the Romanians to bivouac outside and, meanwhile, driving the few remaining civilians out of their own homes onto the frozen steppe, Soldiers panicked. A panzer officer in the village of Peskovatka, just downstream of the Don's last great bend westward, reported on the, quote, frantic and nervous behavior of a Luftwaffe flak unit, blowing up, burning, and destroying stores and transport in a wild fashion. End quote. Soldiers passing supply depots took everything they could, especially canned food, but they had no can openers, so they used their bayonets to open the unlabeled cans and enjoyed whatever happened to be inside. The conditions in the field hospitals were absolutely hellish. They just did not have enough bandages, antiseptic, or medicines to deal with the flood of wounded. The lightly wounded, whatever that means, had to fend for themselves. Amputees with bloody bandages wrapped around their stumps were left in trucks parked outside without pain relief or even food or water. The dead were not removed. Frostbite was treated with ointment and bandages. Inside the hospitals, triage was, well, rough doesn't come close. Serious head and stomach wounds were left to die because Treatment would take too long and require too many resources. The doctors concentrated on the walking wounded so they could be returned to fighting. Surgeons sawed off broken arms and legs as quickly as they could. And the Red Army kept advancing. Eventually, the temperature dropped enough for tanks to cross the frozen river in several places. Civilians came out to the advancing Red Army to report their suffering at the Germans' hands. The Germans had taken every cow, chicken, and pig, every sack of grain, every bit of food. They had whipped farmers until they showed where they had hidden food for themselves. Many had been shipped away as slave labor, and the rest left to freeze and starve. So when they took prisoners, the Soviet soldiers showed little mercy. After a few drinks, Russian soldiers would enact savage revenge. Squads from the NKVD the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, roved through villages to arrest collaborators and executed hundreds of Cossacks and Ukrainians. As I mentioned, Field Marshal von Weeks, commander of Army Group B, and General Paulus, head of the 6th Army that occupied and destroyed most of Stalingrad itself, had recommended a breakout, abandoning Stalingrad and regrouping with other German forces farther west. Hitler forbade this. Clearly, if the Germans pulled out of Stalingrad, they'd never be able to take it again. It was just too far. Their supply lines were stretched much too much. Most of all, the Germans were weaker than they had been a year and a half earlier when they launched Operation Barbarossa. Meanwhile, their enemies were getting stronger, with the Soviets receiving millions of tons of supplies through the Lend-Lease program. And the Americans were now fully in the action. Retreat would have made sense, giving up on the fever dream of a Germany that extended to the Volga, but Hitler refused to give up this fantasy. His answer was Operation Wintergewitter, or Winter Storm, an attack to rescue the Sixth Army by sending yet more men and resources into the hell of Stalingrad. Step one: reorganize proving that the Nazis were just as bureaucratic and process-obsessed, if not more so, than the Communists. They created Army Group Dawn, comprising the 11th Army, with the remnants of Hoth's 4th Panzer Army and Paulus's still-powerful 6th Army, and what remained of the Romanian 3rd Army. The commander was Field Marshal Erich von Manstein, often described as the best German commander of the war. He was the man who had led the successful drive across southern Ukraine, the conquest of Crimea, and the occupation of Sevastopol. His new orders, Operation Winter Storm, to open up a corridor through the Soviet forces, allowing supplies to reach the 6th Army. Now, Manstein also knew that the only sensible thing was for the 6th Army to escape Stalingrad. And he also knew that he could not tell Hitler that. So, he told the Fuhrer that he intended to open up that supply corridor by cutting through the Red Armies toward the northeast. This would allow him to protect his flanks. Meanwhile, elements of the 6th Army in Stalingrad should fight toward the southwest to link up. But doing that would take all of the 6th Army's remaining strength. So, it seems to be a bit of a quandary here. Before we solve it, let's take a short break. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English-language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you, through Patreon. So, if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow, or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it. And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner.
1: Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, You can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net, and now, let's get back to Scott, exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War.
0: Welcome back. We're looking into Operation Winter Storm, the German offensive to break through the Soviet fronts of Operation Uranus and resupply the 6th Army trapped in Stalingrad. The 4th Panzer Army, under General Hermann Hott, renamed Army Group Hott and now incorporating the 57th Panzer Corps and the 17th Panzer Division, was given the first task of penetrating Red Army forces. Field Marshal Manstein had been promised an additional four divisions of panzers, including the 503rd Heavy Panzer Battalion of 45 Tiger tanks, but they did not arrive in time. So the counterattack counter counterattack started with the 57th Panzer Corps of the 4th Panzer Army, Army Detachment Holt of three infantry divisions and two armored divisions. There were also some Luftwaffe field divisions, but by this time these consisted of poorly trained non-combat soldiers, headquarters staff, and a few other men from degraded or destroyed unit. And they were to provide anti-aircraft cover as opposed to Uh, sending up fighters. On the other hand, the 11th Panzer Division had just been sent up from the reserves, and the 6th Panzer Division had been sent at full strength from Western Europe. So, altogether, this group comprised 230 tanks, plus some air support of the 4th Flieger Corps. The 6th Panzer Division brought along 160 long-barreled Panzer Mark IV tanks, plus 40 assault guns. When it arrived in Koltenkovo train station, says Antony Bivor in Stalingrad, the Faithful siege, 1942-1943, quote, his troops were greeted by a hail of shells from Soviet batteries. As quick as lightning, the panzer grenadiers jumped from their wagons. But already, the enemy was attacking the station with their battle cries of, hurrah, end quote. Hermann Hoth, commander of the 4th Panzer Army, to which the 6th Panzer Division had been assigned, had a plan for winter storm. His, his army would relieve the 6th Army in the cauldron. But once again, Hitler decided to micromanage. On orders from Hitler's headquarters, the 17th Panzer Division was diverted from Hoth's strike force and held back as a reserve behind what was left of the Italian 8th Army, far to the west of Stalingrad by this point. Anthony Tucker-Jones had this to say about Operation Winter Storm. Quote, the situation for the trapped Germans was desperate, and everyone on the ground appreciated that this was a one-shot deal. In the northwest, the flanks of Army Group Hot were to be protected by General Carl Hollett's Army Group, while in the southeast, the remains of General C. A. Costanescu's Romanian Fourth Army would hold the Red Army at bay von Manstein was uncertain just how long they could successfully defend their flanks, end quote. According to Tucker Jones, von Manstein knew these assembled forces were not enough to accomplish the goal they had been given. He wrote, quote, when Hitler rejected all Don Army Group's requests for the speedy reinforcement of the 4th Panzer Army at the end of December, the fate of the 6th Army was finally sealed. In vain we had staked the last available man and the last available shell on the liberation of the 6th Army. In vain we had striven to the last possible moment to get relief operation carried out and thrown the fate of the whole army group into the balance to do so. Quote. Operation Winter Storm began on 12th December 1942, starting from the town of Kotonikovo, south of the Don, See map 3 on the web page. The Germans made good progress at first, penetrating the Soviet 126th and 302nd rifle divisions. German soldiers in the cauldron heard the shelling and told each other in excited tones, "Der Maienstein kommt. Manstein is coming." But don't forget, even if Manstein and Hott managed to reach Stalingrad and relieve the 6th Army, Hitler was never going to give them the order to withdraw. The best that Paulus and his men could hope for was supplies, reinforcements, and evacuation of the wounded along whatever corridor the panzers could create. What a hope. The Soviets quickly understood what was going on on their southern flank and moved in the 7th Tank Corps and the 2nd Guards Army to bolster the 4th Cavalry Corps on the steppe south of the city. One Colonel Helmut Ritgen of the 6th Panzer Division later wrote this recollection. Quote, From the late morning of 19 December, the 11th Panzer Regiment was engaged in attacks. The Soviets finally withdrew after prolonged hard fighting, despite the deployment in the sector of guards units. The tanks struggled forward through an area of ravines, treacherous obstacles, with a thinly iced snow cover. End quote. After these initial successes, Operation Winterstorm struggled to keep going. The forces arrayed against them, the weather, the terrain, and most of all, their own weakened state proved Manstein's misgivings correct. Plus, the Soviets were getting better at this all the time, as well as stronger, with more tanks and other weapons rolling off their factories that were running at full tilt for months now. The Soviets launched a counter-counter-counter operation of their own, Little Saturn. Originally, Operation Saturn had been conceived as a follow-up to Operation Uranus. Its original goal was retaking Rostov-on-Don. But with the failure of Operation Mars west of Moscow, go back to the last episode if you don't remember this, the ambitious plan for Saturn was scaled back to Operation Little Saturn. Its less ambitious goals were destroying the Axis forces on the Don and Chir rivers. That's, again, the very southern part of Russia. Then to move in two directions, west to Milerovo, a communication and transportation hub, and southward to capture an airfield the Germans used to bomb Stalingrad near Tatsinskaya. You can see that on the map on the webpage. The 16th of December four days since the launch of Operation Winter Storm, dawned once again with freezing mist over the steppe. That was the day for the launch of Operation Little Saturn. The 1st Guards Army and the 3rd Guards Army attacked from two directions. Guards was an honorary title awarded to armies that had accomplished something remarkable in the eyes of the Stavka. However, the opening of this operation was not promising as the drivers of the T-34 KV-1 tanks could not see very far through the thick mist and stumbled into minefields. Still, within two days, they encircled the Italian 8th Army, some 130,000 soldiers. Manstein sent the 6th Panzer Division to help them. Fighting at the town of Cherkovo left from the 130,000 Italian fighters only 45,000 survivors to join the panzers. The other attack was farther southeast, over the open steppe. The 28th Army and the 51st Army began to encircle the 1st Panzer Army, which had been part of Army Group A, the force attacking the Caucasus, and was now south of Stalingrad. By 24 December, the 24th Tank Corps equipped with T-34, KV-1, and American M-3 Stuart tanks, raided the Tatsinskaya airfield, destroying many transport planes the Germans depended on to supply or to bring what supplies it could bring to the Kessel in around Stalingrad, Writes Antony Bivor, quote, The gravest threat to the Germans was the 150-mile advance of Major General Vasily Mikhailovich Badnov's 24th Tank Corps. On the afternoon of 23rd December, it overran Skasirskaya, just to the north of Tatsinskaya, west of the Don, the main Junkers 52 base for Stalingrad. General Fiebig had received an order from Führer headquarters that his aircraft were not to abandon the airfield until it came under artillery fire. Nobody in Hitler's entourage seems to have considered the possibility that an armored column might arrive at the edge of the field and open fire. Thebig and his officers were furious. One could always recapture an airfield. But if the transport aircraft were lost, then so was the 6th Army. They had no ground troops to defend Tazi, as the Luftwaffe called it. All they could do was to divert seven flak guns to cover the road and prepare all serviceable aircraft for takeoff in the early hours of the morning. There were so many that this did not prove easy. Around the runway, it looked like chaos, noted Richtoven's chief of staff, who was present. End quote. The T 34s rolled into the airfield as planes tried to take off. Antony Bevor described it as a shooting rage at a fairground. Picture plane after plane lined up, engines running, waiting to take off, then moving in a straight line. While 124 planes escaped, some 72 were destroyed in that one engagement about 10% of the Luftwaffe's total transport fleet. This was only bad news for the cauldron. At the Mishkova River, this is about 50 kilometers south of Stalingrad, the 6th Panzer Division, Manstein's hope for the operation, was losing over 1,000 men a day. I think it's time to talk about those winter conditions. By mid-December, the temperature was cold enough that the ground froze solid. The Russian soldiers reportedly welcomed the cold. Many felt it was healthy. And also, the Volga finally froze over enough to allow crossing over solid ice. First, the Red Army made a foot pathway. And then, when the ice was thick enough, they could start driving vehicles over. This allowed them to bring in supplies and evacuate the wounded. They also brought in heavy guns, including a 122mm howitzer that they used to drive the Germans out of the Red October factory once and for all. Over the next two months, 18,000 trucks and 17,000 other vehicles crossed over the ice. General Chukov, commander of the 62nd Army in Stalingrad, was able to cross the Volga safely on foot. On 19 December, he left his headquarters in the city for the first time since October, making his way over to the east shore to attend a party hosted by Major General Rogotin, commander of the NKVD troops in the city. Unfortunately, on his return that night, Chukov fell through a hole in the ice and either drowned or froze to death. But while the Russians seemed to relish the cold, the Germans certainly did not First of all, the 6th Army was surrounded, short of ammunition, and cut off from any meaningful resupply. Rations had to be severely reduced in anticipation of delayed rescue. Frostbite took a steadily rising toll, leading to amputations. The ground, frozen hard as iron, exploded into deadly shards when hit by mortar fire, leading to a drastic increase in abdominal wounds. And overall, the resilience of the soldiers seemed to wane beyond any explanation. German doctors reported soldiers dying suddenly, quote, without having received a wound or suffering from a diagnosable sickness, end quote. The reduced rations in the minds of the doctors would not have been severe enough to cause starvation. A certain Dr. Gergenson, pathologist from the 6th Army, was ordered into the cauldron. On the 16th to perform autopsies and find out what was killing these seemingly healthy young men. The cold was so intense that the bodies had to be gently warmed by stacking them around a small cast-iron oven, where an orderly had to turn the corpses over periodically through the night. Despite the cold and Soviet air and artillery bombardment, Dr. Gergensen performed more than 50 autopsies. In half the sample, he found clear signs of starvation. After the war, Dr. Gergenson concluded that a combination of continued stress from artillery and air attacks, lack of rest, and deep cold upset the metabolism to the point that, even given adequate food, the body could only absorb a fraction of the calories it received. Eventually, this accelerated the process of starvation. Hoth's advance petered out by the 19th of December at the Mishkova River, 50 kilometers or 30 miles from the line the 6th Army held in its pocket around Stalingrad. That night, German soldiers in the cauldron supposedly could see the panzer's artillery flashes. Manstein sent a carefully ambiguous recommendation to Paulus in the cauldron to begin the 6th Army's, quote, attack earliest possible, end quote, to link up with Hoth's forces to the southwest. He also, Manstein also hinted at a, quote, sector-by-sector evacuation of the fortress area, end quote, if necessary. He had to word it this way because Hitler still refused to authorize a withdrawal from the Volga. But also, Paulus refused to acknowledge the hint. He just did not have the nerve to defy Hitler, which is understandable to a point. So it was a dilemma. Hott's forces could not advance any closer to the cauldron. If Paulus had concentrated his forces to the southwest, he had a two-day window when he had a chance of a breakout and escape. But Paulus argued that he did not have enough fuel. He only had enough to move twenty miles. He refused to move then, to give the order to start moving, until the 4th Panzer Army moved to within that distance, or the Luftwaffe brought in enough fuel to allow his 100 remaining panzers to make it 30 miles. By this time, either demand was completely unrealistic. On 21st December, General Kurt Zeitzler, German chief of staff appointed when Hitler fired Halder earlier in September, finally got Hitler's permission for Paulus to break out. But only if the 6th Army maintained control of Stalingrad. According to Anthony Tucker Jones, quote, the chief of staff was nearly driven insane by such a ridiculous demand, end quote. Hott's forces were 25 miles from the edge of the cauldron at this point. If Paulus had concentrated his forces panzers and other forces, he might have been able to penetrate the Soviet forces arrayed there and been able to link up with Hoth. But the Soviet Second Guards Army, plus the 7th Tank Corps and the 6th Mechanized Corps had been redirected to stop Hoth's advance. The generals begged Hitler to allow a complete withdrawal, but Hitler dug in his heels. Zeitzer later wrote, quote, Hitler would not give way. In vain I described to him the conditions inside the so-called fortress. The despair of the starving soldiers, their loss of confidence in the supreme command, the wounded expiring for the lack of proper attention, while thousands froze to death. He remained as impervious to arguments of this sort as to those of others which I had advanced. End quote so here we are late December 1942 with the German sixth army trapped in the city they had fought so hard and for so long to conquer and the only forces with any hope of rescuing them stymied a short distance away and that's where we'll leave the story today Come back in two weeks when we'll pick up the story of the Christmas season in Stalingrad in 1942. Maybe I'll call the episode Black Christmas. What? The title's taken? Oh, well, it was kind of on the nose anyway. See you in two weeks! Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better visual understanding of this episode and the developments, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also, by the way, listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank also all who have supported the podcast through Patreon and... All the subscribers on Podbean and other podcasting platforms. You too can become a Patreon patron at any one time or monthly level you choose, and I'd really appreciate it. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in the Eastern Front, or history in general. If you find it made any errors, if you have a comment, a question, an insight, or something to share, please reach out. You can contact me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca, or you can use the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.